0: A couple of observations, and we're going to kind of jump in. Holy Week really does deal with the heart of our faith. Uh, You probably know this, but depending on the gospel, one-third to one-half of each of the four gospels is devoted to one week, which means there's almost as much material there for a six-day period as there is for the three years prior to that. So it's covered in great detail. Um, It's also true that the events in Jerusalem are the events that led to our faith. It's interesting that Jesus spent three years up in Galilee, yet the Christian faith did not start in Galilee. The Christian faith started in Jerusalem with the events that we're about to look at leading up to Easter and, of course, beyond that to Pentecost. We're going to follow Mark's gospel for a couple of reasons. Um, One is it's the oldest, the first, the earliest gospel, so it's actually closer to the events. Uh, we know that Matthew and Mark use Mark um, Matthew and Luke use Mark as a template, and they uh, add to and then you know and edit to some degree Mark's story. So those three uh, follow along very closely. Um, also, Mark is the gospel that clearly has, and it's the only one that does day markers. So Mark will say, you know, that this day comes to an end, and this day starts. So it's from Mark's gospel we get the idea that there's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And we can simply follow that very easily. We are going to supplement with the Gospel of John because I know the stereotype of John is that it's the spiritual gospel, which means it's a lot of theology and and Jesus says all kinds of things he would not ever say in any of the other Gospels. I am the way, the truth, and life. But it's also true that the Gospel of John has uh, what's called more topographical data than the other three Gospels combined, which means John contains a lot of very accurate historical details that add a lot. For example, when we get to the place where Jesus was was scourged, um, uh, I mean, actually, when he was in the temple and he uh, turned the tables over, John adds the detail that he actually used whips. So we will use John several times today. Uh, we are going to focus <laughs> on uh, Palm Sunday, and then we're going to look in particular at the, the part of the Holy Week that we normally skip over, because normally uh, if you went to everything the church offers, and most of us probably don't do that. But if you did, what would, this would be the normal scenario. You'd be here for Palm Sunday. Then when would, when would you be likely to show up again? Monday. Yeah, Easter for a lot of people. <laughs> 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 Ooh, just right over that guy. Uh, Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday. By the way, it's the events of Monday that we skip that lead to the death of Jesus Christ. Okay, And the Gospels are real clear about that. It's what happens on Monday. That results in him being killed but we skip over that we skip over Tuesday which has more information about that day than than almost three chapters than any other day several significant events Uh, and then Wednesday remember the anointing at Bethany and we jump right to to Monty Thursday so what we're going to do today is we're going to hit Palm Sunday really in some detail because there's been a lot of research recently and there's there's a lot uh, it's not that it 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 was it, always been in the Gospels, but culturally, the way that we celebrate Palm Sunday, we tend to sort of jump over, edit, or filter out a lot of the details uh, that really help it make sense. And then we'll walk through Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then Thursday and Friday, we're just going to kind of mention briefly because you will have opportunities this Thursday, both morning and noon and night, and you will have opportunities on Friday, both at noon and night to attend services there. Uh, We want to start with John's gospel because it's so often true with John. Uh, John just adds some rich detail that sort of set the stage. And we know this is also true in Mark. Mark just doesn't mention it. Uh, He's going to give us some insights that really set the stage. Uh, Jesus doesn't just show up in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's a very particular day. It's a very particular location, and there's some things going on, and John sets the stage very, very well. So we go to John 11, then the Gospel of John. This is where the story starts. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near. This is one of the three great pilgrimage festivals. Every Jew who is as uh, capable and can do it is expected to come to Jerusalem uh, for these, these high holy days. This is the first of the three. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover. Josephus, Philo, some others tell us that the population of Jerusalem would tenfold, fifteenfold increase. It's literally liquid people. Uh, Jerusalem probably had around 30,000 people, but it could go to 500,000 because people from all over the known world wanted to come, and if they could, they did. They come up to purify themselves. If you've been to Jerusalem, there's mikveh everywhere. And so Passover is actually not a day, it's eight days. And it leads up to the Passover festival. So there's all this time when they're purifying themselves. They were looking for Jesus. This is talking about the crowds. This mass of humanity who've come from everywhere. The buzz is out there about Jesus of Nazareth. And so John reminds us that there's some expectation. There's some excitement. Uh, As they stood in the temple, they were asking one another, what do you think? Surely he would not come to the festival, will he? Now, by Jewish law, an adult male should show up at the temple three times a year for the holy days. There's no reason to think that Jesus didn't do that. It's not that far for him. He could have come. So coming to the temple is probably something Jesus did regularly most of his life. But the buzz out there is it's it's known by people who are there that Jesus has become a a very controversial figure and there's some risk for him to come to Jerusalem. This is not playing it safe. So they're wondering with that. And then John tells us the rest. Now the chief priests, the people who actually run the temple, and the Pharisees, not a group you normally get together, but that's what, what Mark says, had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. So they're also looking for Jesus. Now six days before the Passover, this tells you of eight days, this is actually the third day of the Passover holiday, Jesus came. Bethany, Now, several things stand out about that. I mean, uh, once we pay attention to it. One, it's Passover. Do you remember what Passover commemorates? Exodus, deliverance. It is interesting because it is a religious holiday that commemorates a political event. God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They cried out. Remember the burning bush story? Uh, God you know, selects Moses, sends Moses, you know, let my people go. And they are freed, the ten plagues, the Exodus story. And so it's a political event that has become a religious holiday. Uh, the other thing, though, about Passover is because it is a, an event that celebrates deliverance from an oppressor, what do you think happened in the first century about every Passover when you're being occupied by Rome? Trouble. Trouble okay. Josephus records that on at least 12 occasions before, during and after the lifetime of Jesus, there were major revolts. And guess what? Every single one of them happened on Passover. Okay. Uh, second thing he notes is that we're in the temple compound. Uh, This is ground zero for revolt. Okay. the temple is the most emotionally charged place there is for Jews. It's it's holy. It's where God is. Uh, all the expectations are that the Messiah would come, not to Galilee. Where would the Messiah come? To the temple, to the Mount of Olives, and that things would happen there. So it's interesting that the revolts not only happen at Passover, the revolts also happen generally in the temple compound. We've got massive crowds. Now, if you've got, you got an oppressive power who are governing, and they don't have an unlimited number of troops, do they like large numbers of people there? No, because that's just a prescription for disaster. <coughs> Jesus' enemies are there. And we've already identified his enemies, according to the Gospel of John. Who are his enemies? The temple authorities. Not the Jewish people. I mean, that's, that's some, some bad history, that, 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 all that anti-Semitism stuff. The Jewish people, Mark notes, the only reason Jesus is not killed on Sunday and not killed on Monday and not killed on Tuesday and not killed on Wednesday is every time Mark says is that the crowds protected him. The people love Jesus. The people who run the temple, not so much, okay? Uh, That's where his enemies are. And the other thing we're going to see and we're going to see it in spades here is that Jesus has done a lot to set the stage. Mark tells us that before he came to Jerusalem, Jesus sent some of his disciples, unnamed, just some of them, he sent them ahead of him To prepare. And when we arrive in Bethany, he will then send, just a moment, another group of disciples ahead and they go to a place called Bethphage and guess what they find? Things have already been set up and arranged. Now who would have done that? The people that Jesus sent ahead. So this entire thing is orchestrated. Jesus is driving this story. He's sending people in advance. You know, when when they go to the upper room for the Last Supper, He sends a group out and says go out by the way you'll find out that all the arrangements have already been made all you've got to say is this and they'll know and they'll show you where it's at so jesus is very much driving this start with palm sunday we're in mark chapter 11 we're just going to kind of we're not going to read all the story but just lift up some things as they were approaching jerusalem so they've come down from where coming down from galilee probably crossed on the east side of the Jordan River and came down the valley there. That way they would avoid Samaria. Although John's Gospel says that Jesus, in fact, spent quite a bit of time at Samaritan. We have the Samaritan woman at the well and those kinds of stories. Uh, He comes down to Bethphage, which is a little town, and then Bethany, actually Bethany first and Bethphage, and near the Mount of Olives. Now, today, all that's inside Jerusalem because Jerusalem's grown, and right between Bethany and Jerusalem, there's a wall that you've heard about, the one that that they built. So to get to Jerusalem, you could actually probably in the ancient world walk it in 30 minutes, or an hour at most, and today you've got to drive about 40 miles to kind of go around because you can't get through there. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go to the village ahead of you. This would have to be Bethphage because you come to Bethany first. And immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Now, that's fairly specific. How do you know that? Well, he's God. He might know. Okay, you can go that way or you can say, looks to me like some arrangements have been made. And we know this is this is it. Untie it and bring it. And by the way, if anyone says to you, why are you stealing the, the donkey? Say this. The Lord needs it. And he'll give it back. And when that happens, they'll give it to you. In other words, it's scripted. It's all arranged. Uh, They went and found the colt near the door tied to the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders then them said, oh, by the way, what are you doing? "Hell, police, thief. They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. So it has the feeling as though the people Jesus have sent have made arrangements, and this is all playing into those arrangements. Now, here's a, a map of the area. You would come down the right side of the screen, down the, va- the Jordan Valley, you probably at right about where Jericho is, because you used to go up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And as you come up, you'd hit Bethany, and then there's a little place called Bethphage, and then there's the Mount of Olives, and then you come down the Mount of Olives, and there's the temple, and by the way, the temple faces east, which is really important for this story. Um, so what stands out in terms of this story, several things. It's not spontaneous. It does have a feeling like Jesus has deliberately made some arrangements so that some very specific things can happen. Uh, now, Jesus is going to do a series of symbolic and provocative acts, and these are, th- you could not think of three more symbolic acts he could have done that would have got attention of attention people more. Why are all the people jumping up and down and screaming, Hosanna? Because they've seen something, (coughs) because Jesus has sent a message and because they've seen the message. First of all, he'll be mounted on a donkey. That's what we've just heard the story. I mean, this is this is this is staged. It's preset. He's going to get on the donkey and not ride it just anywhere in the world. He's going to come over the Mount of Olives and come down. He is going to be on the Mount of Olives. He's not coming in from the west, the north or the south. He's coming in from the east. We might say it's the most convenient. It's also by far the most symbolic. And he's going to enter Jerusalem by the east gate. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem lately, there's an interesting thing about the east gate. Remember Suleiman the Magnificent about a thousand years ago? He took big stones and blocked the gate. And then he put a Muslim cemetery in front of it. (laughs) Because no Jew will cross the cemetery. Now, what do you think he was doing? He didn't want anybody going through that gate because even a thousand years after Jesus, the same thing that's true for this story was still true. And to this day, that gate is sealed and it's sealed as a very powerful message. So all three acts, get on a donkey, come down the Mount of Olives, enter the temple by the east gate. All three fulfill scripture And all three in the first century are things that the Messiah was expected to do. Here's what people thought. When the Messiah comes, and they're they're getting this from different places, mostly Zechariah, when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will mount a donkey. He'll come down the Mount of Olives and he'll enter the East Gate. And then Jesus gets on a donkey, comes down the Mount of Olives and into the gate. Do you get the message? Okay, it's loud and clear. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Turns out that when Solomon was anointed king of Israel, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, down the Mount of Olives, and entered Jerusalem by the east gate. And so the tradition had become and the expectation had become that this new Davidic Messiah of that same family, when that Messiah would come, what would he do? He would enter Jerusalem just like Solomon did. Zechariah 14. See, the day is coming when the Lord will go forth and fight against the nations. Now, this is a different scenario. This is a warrior God. This is an image of God as a warrior who's going to kick out the evil oppressor as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand where? On the Mount of Olives. Josephus tells us that on three occasions, there were would-be messiahs who gathered their followers at the, town of the, mo- the top of the Mount of Olives and started to march down the hill. And one of them in particular thought he would march around Jerusalem three times and then blow his horn. What story does that remind you of? And the walls would come a-tumbling down. By the way, these three are all after Jesus. And on all three occasions, the Roman cohort met them and annihilated them. <laughs> Except for one guy called the Egyptian who flees to Egypt. His followers are killed. He, he survives. So later, somebody asked Jesus, are you that guy come back again? I mean, why would they be killing these three groups? Because of what Jesus did. And he didn't want to do this again. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. Now, Ezekiel, the, the one in Ezekiel is a little bit more ambiguous, but Ezekiel had prophesied that the prince, which is a title for the Messiah, would enter Jerusalem through the East Gate. Uh, and then in Jewish tradition, you see this in the Mishnah, and the Talmud and some other Jewish writings, that, that the expectation had become as if the, if the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be mounted on a donkey and he's going to come down you know, the Mount of Olives, what gate would he use? they can use anyone he wants to the east is actually the most direct it's close it's also wh- who did it earlier solomon. solomon so the expectation began you know what gate would the messiah use <coughs> duh he'd have to use the east gate and so that was that was the expectation so at the time of jesus these three things are there and that's well known so anybody who does these three things is sending a message now the question is, what did the crowd think? Um, clearly, they hear him as proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. You tell this from the reaction. They do four p- uh, palm branches. Now, we've done in earlier lessons years ago more detail. But do you know, by the way, not manby-pamby palm palm branches. No, those are wannabes. Okay. 16, 18, 20 feet long, right? The way they are in Israel. Okay. Big things. In the ancient Near East, if you wo- wove a palm branch at somebody entering town, what did it mean? Do you remember? Hailing a God, yeah, victorious conqueror. In the book of Maccabees, we've been reading Maccabees a lot in the book of Daniel. In the book of Maccabees, uh, Matthias's son Judas is the one who liberated Jerusalem from the Seleucids. As he comes into town victorious, He's going to rededicate the temple. We're going to found the the holiday of Hanukkah. The crowds greet him with palm branches and say to him that he is now the victorious deliverer of the people. So if you're in Rome, it's an olive deal around your, your head. They hold over him for the triumph. In the Eastern world, this is how you welcome one who has conquered the opponent and delivered you. So it's a pretty, pretty uh, interesting message. Hosanna. Hosanna is Aramaic, Hebrew. It's in both. Actually, it's in Greek, the same (coughs) word. What does Hosanna mean? You remember? Yeah, sometimes it says, save us, all hail, literally deliver us. It's a political word. It's not spiritual salvation, save us. Save us from the oppressor. Just as God sent Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh, God, or in this case, Jesus, (coughs) deliver us from whom? Rome, okay? Third, we say these every communion service, but do we ever think about them? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You may know that that's actually a scripture quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 celebrates a military victory. Read it. Okay, read it. And then the final one's the corker. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Slight problem. There's already a kingdom in place. Who runs it? Rome. And if we're going to have another kingdom, Roman kingdom is going to go. Can you hear the crowd, what they're thinking? Hosanna, Hosanna, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Kick Rome out. That's what they want. Now, that's not the Messiah that Jesus is. But he's deliberately evoked expectations that he is the deliverer. Uh, For to understand his other actions, there's one piece of evidence, other piece of evidence that's come sort of, it's it's always been known, but it's been published recently. Um, Do you know On that Passover, as the Passover is before, There was, in fact, two groups coming into town that day. I mean, this gives you goosebumps. We don't know that it happened the same instant, but we know the two were coordinated with each other. You've got Jesus coming down the valley there, over the Mount of Olives, coming into the East Temple. The exact same moment, you've got who coming in from the West? Pontius Pilate with his cohorts and legions coming to Jerusalem for a particular reason. Because he wants to be ready if all hell breaks loose. Because we know that it breaks loose with some frequency in Jerusalem. On the Passover. In the temple. And so he comes into town. And it's the original shock and awe. Okay. You march in. You make a big deal about it. So this is literally what you have. Not the same instant. But essentially the same time. From one side. And from the other, and some people say that one of the ways you can look at what Jesus did, it's a counter demonstration. Because the one that Rome does, Rome did every year. You, know, you just come in and you just basically intimidate the local people. Don't even think about it. Because I've got three legions and we know how to handle that kind of stuff. You know. And at that same moment or roughly, Jesus comes into town. Now, interesting, you've got two crowds. Both of these processions have big crowds with them. Who's going <laughs> to be on the west side with with Pontius Pilate? Priests, Sadducees, anybody that's pro-Roman, you know, or anybody that wants to suck up to them, you know, uh, big time. Who is going to be on the east side with Jesus? Kay. Now, in the story of Holy Week, sometimes we 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 talk about the crowds as though they're all one they're not there's different groups here Palm Sunday then ends with a climactic and chilling statement in verse 11 Jesus then by the way what we see here is that everything on Palm Sunday was just preliminary everything that you and I normally celebrate Palm Sunday was not the main show this was the warm-up the main show is now what's going to happen next verse 11 Then Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple. tinderbox. If anything is going to happen explosively, that's where it's going to happen. He looked around at everything, but as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus had intended to do one more dramatic act, but daylight ran out. And he couldn't do it. What does that tell you about Monday? He's coming back to finish what originally was part of Palm Sunday. So the stage is set, the crowds are provoked, there's a frenzy of expectation. Jesus is not able to do the last act because it's late, which takes us to Monday. What do you you think the first thing Jesus does on Monday morning? From Bethany into Jerusalem, right to the temple. It picks up exactly where he left off. On the following day, he came from Bethany, he went into Jerusalem, he entered the temple, Uh, He began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying. You know the story. He overturned the tables of the money changer and the seats of those who sold doves. John adds the detail. He took whips and began to beat people, uh, which is the only violent act we have ever recorded that Jesus did. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That's a very important statement because you have to ask yourself, the statement, the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem is the largest religious compound in the known world in the first century. Something like 30 football fields. So you have to ask yourself, is there any place you could shut the whole thing down as an individual? And the answer is yes. But there's only one place it could happen. We'll look at that in a second. He's teaching and saying, is it not written? Now, what does that tell you? What's he about to do? He's quoting scripture. He's quoting prophets. So he's saying that some words of some prophets are now being fulfilled. This is what interprets his act. He's doing all this stuff, and I'm sure a lot of people think he's just gone nuts. The question is, why is he doing it? What purpose does it serve? It's written one place, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And now a separate quote, but you have made it a den of robbers. The first statement is from Isaiah. The second statement is from Jeremiah. So where did it happen? Uh, Northern Wall. Uh, you know where the Wailing Wall is, where the Jews go to? OK. That's the wall. It's on the, the back side over there. And to the right-hand side of that, to be left as you face it, is where the Wailing Wall is. And then, uh, then there's an unexcavated part. And then there's the what are called the Western Wall excavations that were just recently done. Some of us have been there, where the big stones, the Romans, tossed down are still can be seen. And what they notice there is there's a series of little shops. And so what they now know is that this is a series of shops associated with the temple. Stuff was being bought and sold. It was the story where Jesus was at. Stuff was being bought and sold. So some possibility that's there, although more likely it was probably food. The other one, uh, this is called Solomon's Portico. It was a big covered area. and we know from other writings that, that a lot of buying and selling of stuff is in there. So that's two possibilities. The problem is you cannot shut the temple. If Mark's right, if Mark is right that Jesus actually did, at least for a few moments, shut the temple down, you cannot do it from those two places. Where is the only place that you can do it? Well, it's right there. And we have a little bit of a close-up. Of it. This is what's called the Nicanor Gate because That courtyard there is the courtyard of the women. And then you have those little steps and that little wide deal there. Every animal that's going to be sacrificed has to be carried or led by the person offering it. And just on the back side, you can see the horns there, are where the priest receive it, take it and sacrifice it, and sometimes give, give the meat back to you. So where is the one place in the temple one man could shut the puppy down? the Nicanor gate so a lot of scholars think that that if if Mark's right this has to be the location (coughs) which is interesting because the rest of the week we find that Jesus is again remember the the widow's mite story it's 15 feet from that location because it's at the treasury so it looks like that Jesus is positioning himself inside the very heart of the temple all the way in and is going to do a series of prophetic acts at this location so what's jesus doing uh, like a prophet of the old testament and the the, the prophets are, are well known for this they not only said words they also did these these acts symbolic acts that meant thing i mean uh isaiah ran around naked in jerusalem for three years i'm not sure what that was about <laughs> uh, jeremiah would make these little little sand jerusalem's and he destroy it and says thus says the Lord God's going to do that to Jerusalem they just did bizarre things so people knew that prophets just do strange things so what Jesus shows up and he's acting kind of strange and weird what people think hmm looks like we got another prophet here but what's the message well the meaning seems to lie in the words and what he says because he quotes two scriptures um, Isaiah and Jeremiah by the way they're both passages in which the earlier prophet had critiqued not the temple, but the temple leadership. Do you get a theme emerging here? We'll see that theme through the, holy w- the whole week. House of Prayer to All Nations is Isaiah 65. It is a radical call for inclusiveness. Uh, and if you actually read the whole thing, it's actually what, what Jesus quotes is the last line of a little bit longer section. Let's look at the section and see what Jesus is quoting. Because the passage is about not Jews, but foreigners, the non Jew, the Gentile and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, who love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep Shabbat, who do not profane it and hold fast my covenant in the book of Acts, the ministry of Paul, we call these people God fears, you know, those who kind of they're not Jews, they've not been circumcised, they're not fully converted. But they adhere by some parts of the law and, the, and, and, and the many of the beliefs. These I will bring to my holy mountain. By the way, just for clarification, what's the holy mountain? Zion, Zion yeah, Zion. And what sets on top the holy mountain in the first century? The temple. Okay. In other words, it's, it's euphemism for the temple. These I will bring to my holy mountain, to my temple, and make them joyful in, there it is, my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable in my altar, and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In context, Jesus is quoting a passage which is God's radical inclusiveness that everybody and everyone is welcomed into his house of prayer, if they're willing to do these few basic things. Uh, temple's a house of prayer for all people is the message. Now, by the time of Jesus, and you probably know this, was the temple a house of prayer for everyone? No. Matter of fact, there was a series of physical walls and signs and death threats and all kinds of stuff. So the closer you come in, the fewer people. But the irony is by the, the time you're standing where Jesus is standing saying this, no one's that allowed except a Jewish male. That's all that's left. You know, Everybody else has been included. Uh, the letter of Orestes, you can Google it. We're not going to quote it fully, but the letter of Orestes, which is from this period, talks about what makes Jews distinctive is that Moses gave us these iron walls, these palestades that hedged off us from the world. So that Judaism in the first century defined itself as we are the ones who are separate from apart from, walled off from, the nations. Uh, You may know that we actually have found two of the original stones that were there. Uh, There's one that's a fragment, one we have the entire thing, found in 1871. Here's a translation. Not one foreigner is to enter inside the sanctuary, the barrier, or its embankment. Whoever is seized inside, I love it, is himself responsible for his own death. In other words, you'll just be killed on the spot. And by the way, ain't our fault. (laughs) You knew better. It's written in Hebrew, Greek, actually Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Assuming you can read. I guess if you can't get it. So where's Jesus? He's sitting in the center of the temple at the very place where Scripture says they all should be here, but the very place where they aren't there because they're not allowed because of a death threat. You get the irony of that kind of thing? It's a very powerful statement reminding them the temple was intended for everybody the den of robbers now is like also a quotation from jeremiah common perception i remember a lot of times over the years you know we shouldn't sell stuff at the church right why should we not sell stuff at the church jesus wouldn't like it you know <laughs> wouldn't want him coming with the whips again. that's not what this passage is about what's a den fox's den hiding hole, hiding hole. it's where they live okay where they live. So the den is not where you practice something. The den is where you're safe. It's your home. Uh, So his point is that it's not so much where robbery takes place. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but that's not the point. It's the place where robbers take refuge. Well, Rome was in the process of getting as much as it could from the Jewish people. Who did Rome use to do that for them? Jewish leaders. Where are the Jewish leaders? Jerusalem. By the way, there is no First National Bank. What is the bank where all the money is put? The temple temple treasury. Okay, and the people who administer that are the temple authorities. This is the group that you're going to see all week Jesus has trouble with. Um, The chief priests and those people. Now, Mark's gospel notes that it's the symbolic action on Monday that results in the decision that Jesus is, must die. When Jesus disrupts, I'm sure they weren't happy about Sunday, okay, and that message, but when Jesus disrupts the temple on Monday, the response is, he will die. Uh, then the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They kept looking for a way to kill him. Tuesday. This is the least familiar day. It is the most material. It's 115 verses, chapters 11, 12, and 13. Uh, third day in a row, where's Jesus? Bam, right to the temple. We know from what follows at the end of this, he's in the ex- almost within 15 feet of where he was when he cleansed the temple. He's gone right back to that same location. Nearly everything that happens there happens in the temple. Not everything, but nearly everything. Some of the stories him coming and going. Uh, his enemies are ready. And what, what appears to happen now in Mark is that his enemies get together, even people who don't like each other. But the one thing they're willing to agree together and to work for together is who must go. Jesus has to go. He's just too much of a threat. So first we get the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Chief priests run the temple. Scribes are the people who write for them. Elders are the leading elders. So this is, this is that elite group in charge of the temple. Um, and they ask a very simple question How dare you? By what authority do you do this? Now, what's the this? Back to Sunday, get on a donkey, come down the Mount of Olives, enter the East Gate. How dare you? How dare you say that you're the Messiah? Monday comes into the temple, disrupts it, critiques it, and with his scripture quotes, he attacks the leadership of the temple. How dare you? Well, Jesus did dare. And he's got one for them. Here's his reply. Okay, you tell me about the baptism of John. Is it from God or not? Because you guys killed him. Okay? You guys killed him. So tell me. Now, the problem is, if you say it's from God, then why did you kill him and ignore him? If you say it's not from God, the, c- the crowd loves John. And they will tear you to pieces. Kay. And he had them. And then Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard. What's the parable of the vineyard? Well, the vineyard has always been a symbol for the nation of Israel. And who are the vineyard keepers? The leaders of the people. And it says that when they perceived that the parable had been told against them, they sought to kill him because they're not dumb. They knew what he was doing. Round two, Herodians, Pharisees and Herodians, not two people who would ever work together except on this issue. They are sent by the priests. The first group sends the second group, Mark says. What does that tell you? This is a coordinated assault. You know, round one didn't go well for the home team. Let's send round two in, you know. Their question's a great one. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, taxes to Caesar, or not? Slight problem with that question. Either way, you die. Okay, what if I say, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, What's my life expectancy? <laughs> Short, okay. Because of whom? The Romans and the Roman authorities. Now, if I say, sure, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar. Who's going to exit me from this world? The people who are having to pay all these taxes and who hate that. And, the, and we know that they're the zealots and the, the Sicarii, the dagger people. They'll, they'll come out more a few years later, but they're there. Yeah, you know, So it's a trap. Um, Jesus' response is just nothing short of brilliant, you know. He says, okay, show me a coin, you know. Whose image is on the coin? Remember what they said? Caesar's. That's interesting because Roman coins are not allowed inside the temple by penalty of death. Why? They have an image. This is why you have money changers. You cannot use Roman money you have to exchange it for the Tyrian from, from the city of Tyre, the Tyrian drachma, because the Tyrian drachma has, has uh, nature images, does not have an image violating the Ten Commandments. You know. But it gets better. Then Jesus asks, okay, whose title? It's not just Caesar's image. Whose title is on there? Well, this is an interesting thing about all Roman coins. You probably know this. At this point in time, all Roman Caesars after Augustus bear the title God. Or a son of God. That's just part of the Roman theology. And so you get remember DV. You might take Latin. God and you see the little F. You can barely see it up there. They abbreviated for filii or Phileas. Son of God. So Caesar's money proclaims him to be God or son of God. You think there's an issue with that inside the temple. Slight issue. You know. It shows that they're collaborators, they are idolaters, and they're on payr- the payroll of Rome, literally. So in that little question, Jesus shows these guys up for who they really are. They didn't want him dead before. They want him dead now. So Jesus turns the table. He tricks them. Round three, Sadducees. Sadducees are from the tradition of Sadduk. Remember the who built the temple in the first place way back? Solomon. Solomon's first high priest was Sadduk, And for for hundreds and hundreds of years, that was a hereditary father to son, to father to son, to father to son. And so when we get to the Maccabees, that Antiochus takes that away and just gives it to the highest bidder. Sadducees were of the tradition of Sadduk. These are the high priestly families who are of the line of Sadduk, and they had basically they're, still, they're not the high priest now, but they're still very, very important. They ask another trick question. This is a great one. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Remember the Leverett Law? If, a, woman di- if a, a woman's husband dies, she has no male heir. The nearest male relative has an obligation to marry her, sire a male heir, so that the property can be inherited and the family name can continue on. So they've got this elaborate story. Suppose, The first one dies, and the second one marries her, he dies. Third one marries her, he dies. Fourth one marries her, he dies. Fifth one marries her, he dies. Sixth one marries her, he dies. Seventh one marries her, he dies. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, do you get the hypocrisy of that? Of all the groups in ancient Israel, what's the only group that did not believe in the resurrection? The Sadducees. So they've trumped up this fantasy story and this question about something they don't even believe in, thinking they've got Jesus kind of trapped in that. You know, it's just, it's just one of, it's a bizarre kind of story. Now, this may be why Jesus loses his temper. He just says, the original Hebrew, you're idiots. <laughs> you're wrong. You don't understand scripture, and you don't even understand God, and he refuses to even talk to them. You know, Four, the scribe. Now, in Matthew version of this story it's clear the scribe is hostile and he's part of this coordinated attack in the gospel mark that is not true in the gospel mark he does not appear to be part of the attack he appears to be somebody who's been watching on the sides guess what he's just got quite a show and he's impressed Jesus is impressive and he will you know so he comes forward and this appears to be just a question he, he wants to know by the way, this is one of the burning questions of the first century. We've got 614 commandments in the Old Testament. And then the oral Torah, which later becomes the Mishnah and the Talmud. There are over 6,000 more commandments. So you think you might want to know which ones are more significant. It's, it's a burning issue of the day and time. Um, so here in Mark, he does not appear to be hostile. He appears to be genuinely interested. He respects Jesus, what Jesus has to say. Uh, and remember what Jesus said? Slightly different, some different gospels, but he, Jesus' typical, which commandment's the greatest? He says, I'll give you two, and they are, love God, love neighbor yourself, and the scribe says, Rabbi, dead on, you've got it. Another gospel, uh, Jesus gives them, but it's just two sides. Then this guy drops a bombshell, that love of God and love of neighbor are more important than, than what happens in the temple. And where is this being said at? In the temple. It's more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, Jesus is not the only one who's now in trouble. Okay, now here's where it gets interesting. To this comment by that guy, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Okay. It's a remarkable kind of statement. Jesus goes on the attack against his enemies. He sits down at the treasury, watches the wealthy uh, put in large amounts, and the widow uh, gives her might. Uh, Remember uh, remember this place? This is where Jesus moves to. That's the treasury. He's still inside the heart of the temple, just right around the corner. Uh, And the widow's might is, again, another critique of the leadership. He watches all these people Giving vast sums. You ever ever seen a widow's mite? Looks like the eraser head of a pencil in metal. It's just so tiny. It seems insanely. That's what she tosses in the smallest coin that's available. And Jesus says to these people, She has given more than anybody because they gave from their abundance. She who had nothing gave this amount and the day ends Tuesday we're going to end with this now Jesus is setting he leaves the Jerusalem he crosses the valley he comes up on the Mount of Olives and he looks over at Jerusalem and the day comes to an end Jesus will not return to Jerusalem until he returns the last time for his death Wednesday he stays in. Bethany. He's anointed. By Mary, we're not sure different versions of the story. Thursday, he will then come into Jerusalem. The Last Supper, several other activities that are there. He's arrested that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, (laughs) which is in that little valley. Good question. Why didn't Jesus get further away? Why didn't he go back to Bethany? Why did he stay so close? He's arrested, brought before the high priest. Again, it's the high priest, the people running the temple, he's tried at night. The next morning, they hand him over to who? Pilate, the Roman authority, who has permission to do the death sentence. Uh, They're given the choice of Barabbas, the revolutionary or Jesus, the one who did not advocate violence, and they choose Barabbas, no-brainer. They would like somebody to get rid of Rome. And then we lead to the, the uh, Via Della Rosa, which is what we celebrate in the uh, Stations of the Cross, leading to that. Your handout covers the rest of the week, but the clock is unforgiving. <laughs> so uh, our closing hymn is? 429. 429. Would you? Huh? I'm sorry, 292. Would you stand? Wondrous love is this number 292 What wondrous love is this oh my soul oh my soul what